got it. I got it. That's right. Okay. All right, Joshua. Open up to Joshua. Joshua chapter 15. Joshua chapter 15. Joshua 15. 15. 15. Okay. So we are in the final lesson that is definitely going to be a couple-parter. Uh, we'll see how all this works out. But we two weeks ago, we finished with point number one only on that Sunday. And we've got several more to go here. But as we take a look at the rest of the book of Joshua, we're going to be finishing things out from chapter 15 through chapter 24. Um, and there are several things that I definitely just wanted to call out um, because the majority that we spent time on was Joshua 1 through 12, uh, just because there's so much there. And then after that, there's just a few things that I wanted to uh, really call out and explain and, and really explore a little bit with you guys before we put a cap on the book of Joshua. So, okay. So with that in mind, we are on point number two, point number two. So understanding uh, this and where they're at right now, they've conquered the land. Um, they're at a point where they control everything. Uh, and now the command is for them to cast out all the enemies. And so this kind of leads into our point number two here, which we see in Joshua 15, 16, 17, and also 18. So we'll look at all those verses here in a minute. But here's the reality of their situation, all right? As we're going to look at some of these verses, you're going to find out that this is the point. That the enemies couldn't be driven out of the land because they wouldn't do it, all right? Now, this is a very important principle that I want you guys to really grasp and understand. <laughs> God gave the nation of Israel a command, right? Okay, and what was the command? Okay, so get into the land and conquer the land. All right, and what did he say specifically about the enemies? Yeah, defeat them. I mean, utterly, completely, totally. And God specifically says to them, do not make a league with them. Don't come into an agreement with them. Don't make peace treaties with them. They are the enemies of the land. They need to get out. And we already saw some of that earlier on from chapters 1 through 12. But this is something very, very important because they come to a point where they, are, they control all the land and they divide everything up. And as they divide everything up, then this tribe has this section of land they're supposed to go to, go into the land, and then finish conquering it. So they own everything, but they need to get out these other enemies that are there. Now, the reason why this is important is because those of us that have trusted Christ as our Savior, you have conquered your land, not because of you, but because of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, when you are born again and you are saved, you have conquered the land through Christ, okay? So now, parts of you where you used to be controlled by sin, you don't have to be controlled by sin any longer. Things that you struggled with a ton, you don't have to struggle with those things anymore, Lost people really don't care about doing things that lost people do because they're lost. The only time it really affects a lost person, and maybe this is something for you to think about just to see where you're at, okay? Lost people only care about their sin when it begins to affect other people that they love negatively. Sometimes, and not all the time. Whereas saved people, they care very greatly. Like, no one else may know that you sin, but you know, and God knows, and he convicts you, and no one else needs to talk about, talk about it to you, and you know deep down there's something wrong because you violated God because the Spirit of God is convicting you. That's one evidence that you know that you are actually born again. If you sin, and it's not found out, and no one else knows about it, and it doesn't really affect anybody, do you care? Because you should. Lost people really don't care. They just keep sinning and they sin and they sin and they sin because they love doing it. It's part of who they are. 
All right? So when a person becomes born again, Christ moves in and has conquered your heart, conquered your mind, conquered your life, your eternal life, everything. But there are still sin issues that we have, right? We're not like immediately perfect. Like it doesn't work that way. There's still things inside of us that we struggle with. And so now begins that process of sanctification, of learning how to be set apart unto God by being obedient to him, by being submissive to his authority and to his word. And so as God is convicting you, I mean, you are absolutely miserable on the inside. No one else may know what's going on, but you know on the inside that you have violated God. And he does that to you for you to then finally just say, okay, fine, I submit. I need to do what's right. I give up. I need to stop doing this. Like you can't keep on sinning as a Christian and be okay with it. It's just not possible. At some point, there has to be a breaking point. And there's two things that are going to occur. Either the person who is a Christian who keeps sinning comes to that breaking point and they say, you know what, I'm done. I can't keep doing this. Or they just become more miserable, more miserable, more miserable as each day goes on, more miserable, more like the world, to the point where eventually their sin will literally kill them. And that's unfortunate, but that's exactly what happens to a lot of people. So it is possible to be a Christian and be absolutely miserable because you're just not being obedient and submissive to the Lord. You don't have any joy because you're not being submissive to God. So the nation of Israel is in this kind of a situation where they have conquered the land, but now they have to go in and they have to cast out the enemy. But this is the problem. They won't. It's not that they couldn't. They could have, but they just refused to. So Joshua 15, take a look at verse 63. Take a look at verse 63. <clears throat> so talking about the children of Judah in verse 63 someone read that one verse 63 go ahead as for the Jebusites the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem the children of Judah could not drive them out but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day okay so the Jebusites were still in Jerusalem and it says that Judah could not now they could not because they would not because God would not tell them to go do something that they would not be able to do I want you to understand this in your guys' life. God will never tell you to do something that you cannot do. That's ridiculous. Why would God do that? That is very hypocritical. If God says, as far as sin, that it shall not have dominion over you, which it exactly says that in Romans chapter 6, sin does not have to have dominion over you. Sin does not have to control you as a born-again believer. So if sin controls you and you are a born-again believer then you are not living in obedience to God. You're just not. There is something in your heart and in your mind and in your life that you are not being submissive about to God. Because if you are willing to be submissive to God, he will give you the ability to overcome that sin through the Spirit of God. That's what he's in the business of doing. I mean, straight back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And it says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The very first time you see the Spirit of God moving, it is in the act of regeneration of something that was lost, that was corrupt. You have that same Spirit living inside of you. So do not tell me that you cannot stop sinning. That's a lie. And I have to remember that myself as well, because there are certain things that I struggle with. And I have to remember, this is something that I don't have to let this control me. I don't. I have the Spirit of God inside of me. I know that I do. I know that I'm saved. If I would just be submissive to his leading, then it wouldn't be a problem anymore. So you need to remember that. You need to think about that and be very submissive to that. Take a look at chapter 16, verse 10. 
Someone else read that one, 1610. No. <coughs> and they drew not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. Okay, so the similar thing. They could not cast them out. They're under tribute, but that's not what God said. God said cast them out. Chapter 17, verse 12. Someone read that one. And take 13 as well. Yet it came to pass, when the children of Israel were waxing strong, that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. Okay, similar thing. Look at chapter 18, and then someone read verse 3. What's that one? Verse 3. Go ahead. All right, so see, Joshua sees this. Joshua gives them the command, get out there, take your land. And then they go and they get into their land, but they do not drive out the enemies. And it just happens again and again and again. And then Joshua shows back up, as you know a good leader should do, and he confronts them and he says very, very specifically, look at this, verse three, how long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? How long? How long? How long? Okay. So now this is for you and this is for me individually. All right? Because God is telling you the exact same thing. How long are you going to sit there and struggle in your sin? How long are you going to be in this situation where you're just not going to be obedient? How long? How long are you going to be there? Because God has a ton that he wants you to do. He has a ton that he wants you to accomplish. But he cannot use you or work through you because you are being disobedient. And he's asking you, how long? How long are you going to be slack? I mean, how, how far does this have to go? What is God going to have to do to get your attention? What is he going to have to remove out of your life? What is he going to have to add into your life to get your attention? What is he going to have to do to get you to stop being slack? Because this is our tendency as human beings. We tend to just get slack. We tend to be lazy. I mean, you guys know the, the, the phrase that people say. If you don't know it, then you'll hear it this time. But it talks about how, you know, if you have idle hands, idle hands, idle time, it is like one of the worst things you possibly could have. Because when you have nothing to do, then you choose to do what you want to do. And generally speaking, most of the time, the things that you want to do are not things that God wants you to do. And I know that from just personal experience. When I have downtime, generally, who do I spend it on? Me. And it's the same thing with you. And God is asking you, how long? How long? What is it going to take? How long? How long? And so this leads to our two points here. Unbelief stops God in his work immediately. Unbelief stops God in his work immediately. Because this is what happened in the nation of Israel. You know, in Mark chapter 6, I wish we had time to look at all these verses. We just don't. But in Mark chapter 6, there's a couple times where it talks about where Jesus marveled. There's two instances where Jesus marveled at people. The first one was is that he marveled because of their unbelief. And it says very, very specifically that he could not do many works there. He couldn't do any mighty works there because of their unbelief. When people do not believe God, God cannot work. And that should just be very simple logic. 
If a lost person doesn't believe the gospel, they cannot be saved. And that's not God's fault. That's theirs. They don't, they're not willing to believe. And it's the same for you if you're saved today. The reason why you can't get over the sin and the issues in your life is because you're not willing to believe God. You're not willing to believe him. Belief is the key. God cannot work when you do not believe. And that's so important. And that's why letter B says, we must choose to believe the Lord above all things, above everything that we think, everything that we feel, everything. We need to believe God above all things. So let's go to Mark 14. Hold your spot in Joshua and go to Mark 14. Mark 14. Mark 14. Mark 14. And I wanted you to see this. I I mentioned this, uh, I think, on Wednesday. Um, Or no, maybe I didn't. I think I mentioned it in JBI. Never mind. Most of you guys weren't even in JBI. Okay. Um, All right. Mark 14 and verse 36. So this is Jesus before he goes to the cross and before he dies. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so what he does before Judas comes in and betrays him is he prays to God. He prays to God three different times. And we know the prayer that he prays because we can read that in John 17. But part of that prayer, too, was what is recorded here in Matthew and in Mark uh, specifically. And here in verse 36, uh, it says, and back it up at verse 35, And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So he did not want to go and die on the cross. In his humanity, he knew it was coming. He knew that he was going to suffer. He knew that he was going to die. And Jesus, in his humanity, did not want to die. It even says that in Hebrews chapter 12 that not only the, the pain physically, but then the spiritual pain on top of it. It says that he endured the shame. That's what it says. He knew it was going to be shameful. He's holy. He's perfect. He doesn't want to be touched by sin. And so not only physically is it going to be a huge challenge, but spiritually it's going to be a huge challenge because he's never been touched by sin before. And so it's going to be something that he's going to have to endure. And so when he <laughs> prays to God the Father, he asks God the Father, please let this hour pass from me. I do not want to go and I do not want to die. I do not want to die as an innocent man. I don't want to die for the sins of of all humanity. He did not want to in his humanity. And then look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, which is basically talking about this intimacy as as a child would towards their father. All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. So Jesus didn't want to do this, but see, this is the reality, and this is the situation that we're in for you and I. We're in situations where we don't want to be submissive to God, whatever it is. I mean, you can be thinking right now about whatever the issue is in your life or the thing that you struggle with or the thing that you know that you and God are not on the same page with. Whatever it is, think about that, all right? And it could be something that no one else even knows about. So whatever that is, we don't want to yield that to God. We just don't. And I totally get that. We don't want to yield that over to God. Okay? But the reality is, is what did Jesus choose to do? What did he say? Read it again, in case you forgot. Let God's will be done. Yes. It's not about what I want. It's about what God wants. And see, this is the heart of someone who is a true worshiper of God. A true worshiper of God says... I really don't want to do this. God, please, I don't want to do this. This is, oh, this is going to be hard or this is going to be embarrassing or this is going to be, oh, this is just going to be a hard road to travel. This is going to, 
Ugh. But yet they say, you know what? But it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. And so I'm going to submit. That is a true Christian. Because when they submit to God's authority, then there's freedom. There's freedom. And I'm telling you, this is what's missing in a lot of Christians' lives and probably missing in your life. So that's why I wanted to hit that principle. Go back to Joshua and go to Joshua 21. So, point number two, the enemies couldn't be driven out of the land because they wouldn't do it. They were not submissive to God. They were not submissive to Him and what He wanted for them. They were just not submissive to God. All right, in Joshua 21. Another very important principle that we can learn from these remaining chapters is point number three, and that is that God always keeps his promises. Always. 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 God always keeps his promises. Always. Every promise that you find from God the Father in the scriptures, he will keep it. And give me just one reason why. Why, is, why do we know that that's true? Okay. Yeah, okay, so past prophecies, past promises have been proven to be true. Because if he's perfect, then if he made a promise and it didn't, he didn't fulfill, fulfill it, then that would be like lying and that would mean he wasn't perfect. Yeah, exactly. Titus 1 2, one of my favorite verses, is that God cannot lie. He cannot lie. So if he says that he's going to do something, then he's going to do it. If God messes up in one area, if he doesn't fulfill on one promise, then he can no longer be God. It's just his nature. What were you going to say? Yes, and he loves us, and he cares about us, so he will keep his promises. Absolutely. So we know that God keeps his promises. Now, there are some times that we're in a circumstance that we may not actually believe that, that we might doubt that, if God actually keeps his promises or not. But I'm telling you that he will, and he does, every single time. And this is what I love about the nation of Israel in this example that he gives in chapter 21. Look at verse 43. 43. All right. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not ought of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel all came to pass. Now this is huge. This is huge. Because when was the first time that God promised to the nation of Israel a land and a people for that land? Anybody know? Yeah. Anyone know the chapter? Anyone know the book? Okay, Genesis. All right. Chapter? 32. No. Less. 23. No. Less. 21. Less. 18. Less. 16. Less. 14. 7. Someone said 12. 12. 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. All right? Now, we're talking, I mean, pretty close to about, let's see. You're, I mean, close to at least 800, maybe 1,000 years since God made that promise. That's uh, pretty significant, I would say. Now, a lot of us, we want things immediately, right? Okay, so here's, here's the reality. God doesn't work that way. Sometimes he does. Like when you're born again, there are certain things that he helps you out with immediately. 
There's certain things that he does in your heart immediately, right away. Just like with the nation of Israel. When he had them come in, they conquered the majority of the land immediately. But there's still work for them to do. And we already talked about that pattern. So there are still things that he wants you to do. Now, why does God allow you to suffer? This is a good question, because I think a lot of people ask this. Why does God allow you to suffer? After you're born again and you, you are adopted into his family, why does God allow you to suffer to work through sin issues, to work through maybe problems, family problems, personal problems, bad choices, consequences, things that maybe you, it's not even your fault, but it affects you anyway. Why does God let that happen in your life? So you can learn from it? Yes. So you can learn from it? What other ones? Yeah. Just to keep showing you that he's the only way. Yeah, okay. Give you a test of faith. Yeah. You know, in the Bible, one of the things that really blows my mind, because I've, I've thought a lot about this, the nation of Israel, back in Exodus, you know, why did God let them wander for 40 years in the desert? Why did he do that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why would God do? He did that for a reason. And he specifically tells them that reason. He said, the reason why I'm letting these things happen unto you is for you to know what's in your own heart. See, God already knows your heart. He knows you inside and out. He knows everything about you. What he wants you to know is that he wants you to know what's in your heart and what's in your mind. Because here's what I found in my life. As I have been submissive to God and things have unfolded that have been negative in my life or they may have been consequences of my own bad choices, I get to know me. And the more that I get to know me, the greater my love is for God. Why? Why is that true? The more I get to know me, the greater my love and appreciation for God. Because we realize how much like grace and mercy God has given us despite like we've rejected him. Yes. And see, this is why, like I've been, I've been going back and forth in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul talks about how I glory in my infirmities and I boast in my weaknesses. <laughs> like, okay dude, you're psycho. <laughs> I hate my weaknesses. I don't like my infirmities. I don't like the things about me that, that make me unattractive. You know what I mean? I mean, none of us do. I mean, that's, that's like a crazy person talking. But yet Paul says that. And he says specifically in that chapter, 2 Corinthians 12, that he boasts about it, that the power of Christ may rest upon him. Well, there's this weird dynamic in the Christian life that when you get to know yourself for who you really are, and then you finally understand that who I am, flaws and all, ugliness and all, mistakes and all, that God still cares about me, like he still loves me, <laughs> that I don't have to put my best foot forward because he's seen my worst foot, <laughs> and even then he still died for me. Like that is amazing to me. And so the more mistakes I make, the more weaknesses I find in myself, the greater my love and appreciation is for God because I'm finding out who I am. And that just shows me who God is and his heart for me. And it makes me want to glorify him with everything that I have. It's amazing. And that's exactly why God does that. So at times, God will let negative things happen in your life, things that you don't want, because he wants you to learn very specific things just for you about him about you, about life, about spiritual principles that will change your outlook on everything. It's not always just like when you get bad news, and this is weird, 
but I, based on the context of what we've been talking about, I think you'll understand what I'm saying. When you get bad news or when bad things happen or when hard things unfold, you should actually be thanking God for those things. And the Bible actually talks about that. Now, in the moment, is that easy to do? Heck no, absolutely not. It is not easy to do. But when you go through it with the Lord and then you look back on it, you're like, oh my goodness, all the different things that I learned all the way through that circumstance. And then God has given you those things as a gift because in the future, you're, there are other things that are going to come. And there's also going to be other people that work through other things as well that are very similar to your struggles and your issues. That then now you can minister to them and to help them based on your life and your story. It's amazing. And I love how God does that. He is infinitely wise. And so there's part of me, although the moment that I was saved, I wish I could go to heaven right away and be with him just for all eternity. There are certain things that I've learned about him now through my flaws, through this flawed world that I have learned to appreciate and it's really made me understand God in a way that I wouldn't have understood him otherwise. It's amazing. All right, so the two points under this one is that God is not a liar, a liar and he does not change his mind. He keeps his promises always. And, and this is the point that I want to really focus on, he will finish what he has started in this world and in you. He will finish it. He will. He will. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. You just need to trust him. This is something very difficult for children to learn when it comes to their parents. It's very difficult for you at times towards your parents is that, hey, with my kids, sometimes they question the things that I'm doing and I'm like, hey, listen, stop. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. The decisions that I'm making, I'm not crazy. Just trust me. And God does the same things towards you and I. All right, that's point number three. Okay, point number four, Joshua 23. Joshua 23. And this will be our last point for this morning. Joshua 23. And we'll finish next Sunday on 5 and 6. Okay. Joshua 23. All right, so here's the principle that we're going to explore. Is that God has brought you this far, so do not go back. And if you go back, it will destroy you. So this one is a really, really good one. Very, very practical. Very practical. So in Joshua 23, and I'm just going to pick a few verses here and there in this chapter. So Joshua, it says in verse two, he called for all Israel and for their elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age and ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. And then he talks about dividing the land and uh, talking about possessing them. And that's why he says in verse six, be therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left, that ye come not among these nations that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God as ye have done unto this day. And then jump down to verse 11. Take good heed therefore unto yourselves, that ye love the Lord your God. Else, so here's the other side. Else, if ye do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall go and shall make marriages with them and go in unto them and they to you, know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish 
from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. And then he continued, and we'll just read verse 14. I love this part. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Okay, so very simple. He's going to die. He's going to die very soon. You got chapter 23 and chapter 24, and then he passes away. And here is his final words unto them. This is part one. Chapter 24 is part two. And he tells them very, very specifically, very specifically, you have seen what God can do. You've seen the impossibility of what he can do. Devotionally speaking, what's that in reference to for you? What's the big thing that God can do that you can't do? Salvation. Okay. You have seen what God can do. Has God saved you from eternal damnation through Jesus Christ this morning? I hope he has. If God can do that, what else can he do? Yes, absolutely. And so God says, you have seen, you have seen what I have done in your life. Now, go, be obedient, cleave unto me, do what I tell you to do, drive out these enemies. And if you don't, it's not like a buffalo just went by. I felt the floor shake. All right. If you don't drive out these enemies, then they are going to be snares and traps and thorns in your side, and it is going to not go well for you. And so I wanted to bring this point out because you have to understand, God has brought you this far. Don't go back. Don't go back. Some of you have already. God has brought you so far and then you've gone back. And some of you have gone far, back, then this way and then back, then this way. And that's the human tendency and I totally understand it. But don't go back. If you go back, it will destroy you. You will be full of regret. There are going to be things that are going to unfold that you know full well are going to be your ruin. It's going to ruin your testimony. You know, it only takes, I mean, you can have a, you can spend a lot of time, you know, stacking up a barn with a whole bunch of stuff that you want to hold on to, but it only takes one spark for all of it to go away. One bad decision can ruin a lifetime of good things that you've been doing for the name of the Lord. It just takes one. It just takes one. And the enemy knows that, which is why the enemy is out to get you to make those decisions. You have to understand, letter A, under this point number four, that sin always leads to death. Always. Always, always. Sin always leads to death. Always. Every single time. Every single time, sin always leads to death. It will destroy and it will kill your relationships with people. It will destroy and it will kill, I mean, opportunities that you can have that God has laid out for you. I mean, you've got to understand that from the moment that you are saved, that God, even before you're saved, before you're saved, God sees the potential in you. He knows who you are. He knows how he made you and he sees what you can do. And so he has stuff that he wants you to accomplish, things that he wants you to do. And so at the moment of salvation, he's like, all right, awesome. Now we can get to work. We can get this stuff done. But then if we are disobedient in the process, it can actually negate all the things that God wants to accomplish. And all the people that he wants to reach through you as you're obedient. Because remember, it's just not all about you. It's about the other people that are around you. Because there are only people that you can reach that no one else can reach. So as we choose to be disobedient, not only does it ruin our lives, but it could ruin the potential of other people's lives to get right with God and to glorify God. And then don't stop there. What about them and the people that they can reach? 
that only they can reach, that you'll never be able to reach. And then what about those people? And then what about those people? And then those people? And then those people? You've got to understand that this is so much bigger than just you, but you are a key part of this whole thing. Because how do you know that through your obedience that you'd be able to affect, I mean, probably thousands of people, I mean, over generations into the future, you have no idea. I mean, I'm here today because of someone's faithfulness from years ago. that I don't even know who they are. Like my dad told me the story about how he came to know Christ as, his, as a savior. And these people that are Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, that witnessed unto him, I don't know who they are. I have no idea who they are, but I'm so thankful for them. I'm thankful for them because through that, my dad gets saved. And then through that, I'm raised in a home where both my parents know Christ. I'm exposed to the gospel. And now I have the opportunity to share those things with you. So you should be thankful. You should be thankful for the people in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, some 40, 50 years ago that witnessed to my dad. You should. Because that's how things work. But yet we get so focused on our life, our moment, our week, our day, and we don't think about how those things affect other people. Your disobedience and your lack of submission to God affects multitudes of people and multitudes of circumstances that you can't even comprehend. But I want you to comprehend just a sliver of it because it's so important. And that's why, letter B, maintaining fellowship with God after salvation is critical. It is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. Go to John 21. John 21. And we'll end here. John 21. Okay, so John 21. Uh, this is the circumstance where you got Peter. He denies Christ how many times? Today's Three times. He denies Christ, and so then Christ is uh, killed, he's buried, he resurrects. Um, Peter's actually at the tomb after his resurrection, but he doesn't quite believe him yet. And then Jesus shows up in the midst of his disciples, and finally they're, they're able to see him, and they believe. But there's still something important that needs to happen in, in Peter's life before he can actually go and be the man that God wants him to be in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. as he's preaching to thousands of people um, and then thousands of people end up getting saved as a result of his obedience. So in John 21, they're out fishing and uh, what ends up happening, and this is actually kind of cool, I'll back it up just a little bit from here. Um, so they go in verse 3, Simon Peter says, I go a fishing. And they say unto him, we also go with thee because he's the leader and they end up following his lead. And they went forth, and they entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loves saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Okay, this is amazing. This is really, really cool. I got a cross-reference written in the margin of my Bible because here's what happened, all right? They're in a situation. They're like, hey, let's go fishing. When did they fish last? When was the last time they fished as far as when it was recorded in the, in the Gospels? Before they followed Christ, okay? So that's a little bit of a picture there, all right? So you have, they say, you know what? We're done. They forsook their nets. They followed Christ and they followed him for three and a half years. He dies, feels like everything falls apart. And what do they do? Ah, let's go fishing again. 
They go back to the things that they did before. Okay? See that picture? Okay. Now, one of the moments where they left all to forsake, they, they forsook the, the fishing and everything to follow Jesus Christ, happened in Luke chapter 5. And if you guys remember that one or not, so here, Jesus, he wants to preach, right? And he's preaching from the ship, all right? They had just fished all night, and they did not catch anything. Similar circumstance. They fished all night and couldn't catch anything. Jesus says, hey, let me get into your ship. They thrust out a little bit. He preaches unto the people. And so after he's done preaching, they put the ship out a little bit more, and he says, go ahead and throw the net over. And they're like, we fished all night. We fished all night, and we caught nothing. And ironically, it's the same side of the boat. They're like, nevertheless... At your command, we'll do it. And so they put the net over, and the exact same thing happens. They couldn't even pull the net up because of all the fish that they had in their net. And at that moment, that's when Peter dropped to his knees, and he said, you are the Lord. And then he says, okay, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's that story. So here you have this circumstance, the exact same thing that unfolds. They fish all night, catch nothing. Jesus is on the shore and says, hey, have you caught anything? No. Throw it on the right side of the ship. Boom. And then immediately John's like, it's Jesus because they just had the same circumstance. It was three and a half years ago, but it was the same circumstance. And Peter would have recognized that too. All right. So I love that. So then they go to the shore and then verse 10, Jesus says, bring the fish. And they ended up uh, making uh, lunch basically at that point in time. And he says in verse 12, come and dine. And none of the disciples just ask him, who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. So they all knew that it was Jesus. And then Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had died, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he's talking about the fish, by the way. He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Why did Jesus ask him three times? Exactly. He denied him three times. So he asked him. He asked him. He says, yes, I love you. And he said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Now look at what happens in verse 18, because now Peter's in a very submissive state. God confronted him and he admitted it. And now he's at a very submissive state. Look at verse 18. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. See, he said, when you're young, you dressed however you wanted, you went wherever you wanted, you did whatever you wanted. But when you're old, it's not going to be that way. You're going to go and do things that you don't actually want to do. And that's exactly what happened in the life of Peter. He forsook fishing again, and this time, the last time. And he ended up dying for the name of Jesus Christ as a martyr. And history tells us that he was actually crucified, but he didn't want to be crucified the same way the Lord did. He wanted to be crucified upside down because he felt that it was blasphemous for him to be crucified the same way that Jesus was. And so he was crucified, just like Jesus. And I bet you Peter didn't want that to happen. But he says, when you're old, you're going to stretch forth thy hands. And verse 19 says, this is, signifies what death he should glorify God. And they're going to carry thee whither thou wouldest not. In verse 19, and here's what Jesus says. 
And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me, follow me, follow me. Doesn't matter where I take you, where I take you is going to be the best. So just follow me. That's exactly what he's saying. Verse 20, then Peter turning about, see if the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and saith, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? See, now Peter's wondering, well, what about him? I mean, he's going to do the same thing that I've done or what's going to be about his life? Jesus said unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. See, I love that. I love that. Because there are times where God is specifically calling you and there's part of us that we hesitate. We're like, oh, okay. But what about him? Or what about her? Or what? And Jesus is like, forget them. Just you follow me. I think way too many times our obedience is dependent upon the people around us. I'll obey if that person obeys. I'll go to the Christmas party if that person goes. Oh, I'm sorry. Did that come out? Okay. I, I'll go to camp if that person goes, right? I mean, we tend to do this. I'll go if someone else comes with me so that way I'm more comfortable because I'm insecure. That's the reality behind it. When the reality should be, God wants me to go. So I don't care if no one else goes. If no one else goes, I'll go. If no one else participates, I'll participate because it's not about me and it's not about the people around me. It's about me being obedient to him because he wants me to do whatever. That is a mark of maturity that you guys need to apply to your life. Who gives a rip about anybody else? Obey God. That's like my version of what Jesus told Peter. (laughs) Who cares? Just obey me. God has a plan for you. Now, care people, care about people along the way for sure, but when you're talking about what God wants you to do, never let your obedience be dependent upon other people. You cannot do that because eventually that will break down and you will not be obedient. You won't. You won't because people flake out. They're very famous for flaking out on the Lord, especially when God is looking for someone just to be obedient regardless of anybody else. So some really good things that we talked about this morning. Whatever's really hit you, um, I want you to write it down. So before you put your notes away, I mean, we're, I'm going to give you guys another study sheet for, for number five and number six, but maybe at the bottom, right below the dotted line or right above the, the dotted line. Well, I want you just to write down, what's the one thing? What's just one thing that God wants you to take away from this? What's one thing that really kind of hit you hard this morning that you need to be obedient? I'm just going to give you guys a couple seconds to do that. Whatever it is. And don't worry about the person next to you. And don't look on anybody else's paper. But just write down, what's the one thing that guys really kind of hit you based on the lesson this morning? These three points that we covered. It's very important for you to identify this. Be objective. Write it down so you can actually do something about it. So it's something you know you need to do. All right, while you're finishing writing, I'll just go ahead and pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Joshua. There are so many things that you desire to teach us. And I just pray, God, that we would have obedience and submissive hearts. And if there's anyone here today that's just really having a hard heart, God, I pray for them. And I know that you've already been praying for them. And so I pray that you would 
um, just help us to allow you to uh, work in us, especially in those areas that we tend to hold back from you and the things that you desire to do. Um, There's so many people that can be affected uh, by our obedience if we would just be willing to see it that way, which is why you've told us in your word that we're supposed to fix our eyes on the things that are unseen, because it's the unseen things that are eternal. We get way too fixated on the things that we can see, the things that we can feel, the things that we can touch. And so I pray, God, that we would believe you, that we believe your word, and it would cause us just to be very submissive to you, knowing that uh, you love us like no one else. And uh, the things that you have planned for us are better than anything we could ever imagine. And so I pray that we'd yield ourselves to you fully and completely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.